Welcome, my lords, to the Well-Earned Comforts Podcast. I'm Sam. And I'm Seth. Thank you for joining us on the Walls of Isengard as we explore the many works of Tolkien and discuss life. We're glad to have you as part of our fellowship, as there's no telling where we'll be swept off to. Now, we're coming off of a Thanksgiving week. It's been a couple weeks since Seth and I have podcasted. I'm sure we've both gorged ourselves in plenty of uh, turkey and mashed potatoes, but I'm going to check in, babble like Butterbur for a few minutes with my brother over there in Midland, Michigan. What's going on, Seth? How you doing? Hey, not, not too bad. We uh, It's been a while. It's probably been more than a month at this point, if not very close. Uh, yeah, pretty close. It's been It's been busy, but it's been good. We've just been going through the grind of life one day at a time and little Evelyn is growing up as fast as can be it appears to us at least I mean I know I've mentioned it before but I go to work for 12 hours come home and it's like oh something is a little different I don't know if I can always put my finger on it but she's a little more attentive a little more responsive a little more smiley it's always something yeah so it's pretty special uh but other than that you know been working on projects trying to get our house a little more functional we still our basement just kind of is a a mess right now (laughs) so Mm -hmm. trying to reorganize things and a lot of projects i just put together a giant cabinet yesterday that we bought on amazon that took a couple hours nice it's nice because you know the instructions are all laid out but it's it's a a little harder and more time consuming than you'd realize (laughs) yeah Um, i'm sure and you uh you were doing some drywall i saw Yeah, well, uh, when we had those new HVAC lines put in, the uh, people, the builders that were planning to work with us just decided to ghost us. uh, And every other builder I've called basically said, oh, well, we might be able to do it in like next May. And we had this giant hole in our in our coat closet uh, that was supposed to be an air return. So you don't need to put any HVAC lines or anything. All you have to do is seal it off with drywall and you know, mm-hmm. make a new wall out of it. And that creates the the return air. Um, so I finally was like, you know what? I've got YouTube. I've got most of these tools. Let's just build a, my own wall and drywall it. And it actually, it turned out okay. I will say I'm glad it's in the closet. Uh, <laughs> but for being in a closet, it's actually, it's pretty well. It works pretty well and it's super functional. Well, and you have a little bit of experience doing drywall back at mom and dad's house when, you know, we put bodies through walls. <laughs> We definitely put more bodies through walls than we'd repaired those walls. We generally <laughs> just covered, if you remember, I think it's still that way in the hallway yeah. upstairs. It's just a cover. It's We didn't redo the drywall. Right. But when Darren oh. and Nate went through the wall, I'm pretty sure they did. They redid that one. That they was redid it. I don't yeah, think we we've did. ever redone actual drywall. So it's it's not exactly fun. <laughs> I don't yeah. I don't like messing with drywall too much, but... It's a good learning experience, and now I have a little bit of knowledge under my belt. So, for future projects that might come up, big man's man over here. And now, just a homeowner for <laughs> once. Fair but enough. yeah, we've uh, we've been we've been good, pretty pretty busy though. We've been in, enjoying life though. How about you guys out there? It has been a whirlwind. We've done a lot since our last podcast. We went and did our Spartan uh yeah yep. half marathon or our 21k in north carolina i did not almost die of heat exhaustion this time around because it was actually fairly cold we started it was like 35 degrees when we first started in the morning at like 8 45 but then it warmed up and it was perfect weather it was perfect weather but the race itself was just a lot of fun there was a lot 
a lot more obstacles, water walks and mud and all this other stuff that we had to go through. We definitely didn't like finish in great time. It took us, I think, four hours, four hours and 18 minutes for our half marathon. That's including all the obstacles and everything else, too. But um, I only failed one obstacle. And that really. What was that? Which one was that? It's called the Olympus. It's it's like a a wall that you have to hold on to. I'll send you a video of it because I we I bought a waterproof case and I took videos of some of the stuff that we did. But that's cool. You have to hold on with your hands and then press your feet up against it and walk sideways across the wall because they have like either rock wall holds or holes in the wall you have to hold on to and you have to shimmy all the way over. Sure. It's probably a good 20, 15 to 20 yards. And it, I got like probably within the last five to 10 feet and I just, I trapped myself. I put one hand over the other and they just kind of stuck. And of course your feet are on the wall. You can't really do anything. You can't put like your feet on any holds. It's just on the wall. And so I, I fell. <laughs> oh, man. But thankfully, that was a penalty loop instead of burpees because every once in a while they do penalty loops instead of burpees. So we just had to run through some more mud. That was the penalty. But did, Ar- was... did Ariel make it across that one? No, she didn't. She did do better this time on the obstacles than the others. But there were a couple that she still had to take some penalties on. But sure. Yeah, she she killed it. It was really fun getting to watch her really do this stuff, too. and. And then just finishing together was awesome. Like we were both, there was one point in the race where my legs started like seizing, my quads started seizing Mm. and she had done a great job ahead of time of like making sure we had all the nutrients or whatever we needed because we had camelbacks and we had raisins, we had like Nutrigrain bars. She brought some stinger energy packets, like we had it all. And so she, I was running and I was just feeling like my quads seize up like after doing a bunch of squats or something. And she's (laughs) like, hold on here. Like take your hydration packet, take your energy thing, this, that. And then within like three minutes, I was like, okay, good. I'm good to go. <laughs> nice. nice. But that was the only little scare we had. Uh, but other than that, it was just a lot of fun. We did have, this was actually really crazy during the sandbag carry. You have to carry, I think it's a 60 pound sandbag on your, on your back or however you want to carry it. It's not that bad, but there was this downhill portion with reeds that were super slippery. And I had stopped cause I was further ahead. I'd stopped. I was going to help Ariel down. And this bigger guy, like taller than me, just big boned guy, was like trying to go a little faster. He's like, hey, I'm going to sneak past you. I was like, all right, that's fine. He trips, snaps his ankle, and you just hear, medic. like he shouts at the top of his lungs oh, and no. for the medic. And Ariel was right there. And she's just like, what do I do? I'm like, just get out of the way. Like, calm down. And so they, the, thankfully, the, like it was at one of the obstacles so that there was somebody actually there to, to help him out. But, um, yeah, it was one of those one of those moments where she was like, "Yeah, I could not survive in war or you know, be in the army or anything." Because like she started tearing up and everything. She's like, "I don't know what to do." She's like, "Let's just get out of the way. He's okay." Did but he actually can... snap his ankle? Like, could you hear it? Yeah. Oh yeah. boy. And then we're part of like a Southerner Spartan Facebook group, and so after the race, he had actually posted a picture of the X-rays and everything, and him in the hospital with like a thumbs up and. He said, good job, all you finishers. It was kind of funny, though. Like, it's not funny. This guy's in pain. But it was kind uh, of funny there's, because... There's humor in it. Well, I was like, hey, man, you, like, you want me to stay with you until the minute comes? He's like, no, you have to finish. You have to go. It was like one of those like scenes from a movie. Leave me. I'm fine. Go ahead. <laughs> but yeah, it was a little intense. Like after that, she was like a little shaken. But, you know, then we had another... 13 miles of running to do so kind of wore off pretty quickly i was gonna say the best thing for that is just to keep moving and let adrenaline take over you know exactly that's what we did 
And then we had Thanksgiving, went to Colorado for that, which was fun. Played football with Steven and nice. got to go to Estes Park for the Christmas parade. And then, yeah, came back and went straight back to work. Yeah, that's how it goes. Did, uh, <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask, I know you were finishing up your classes for uh, the, the foster system uh, program mm-hmm. that you guys are in. Have you completed those classes now and since it's been a while? Yeah, we are set to go on everything other than our background checks are just taking a while because they have to have up to seven years of residence. And so since it's out of state, they have to send those mm-hmm. to Colorado and they have to do those. So it takes a while. But she said once that comes through, she'll do another home visit, make sure, you know, we're good to go on that on that end. And then we're set for January whenever we want to open up our home. We still need nice. to get a couple pieces of furniture for the spare bedrooms and stuff to sure just make it a little easier. But we also were told by a couple people like don't over prepare, don't buy a bunch of stuff that the kids not going to either use or want. So sure, we're trying not probably to just, like probably yeah. just buy stuff that you would use anyways. And yeah, yeah, dresser, nightstand, stuff like that. But oh yeah, oh, yeah, good. that's super exciting, exciting stuff. Super exciting. Yeah. Definitely. Well, let's jump into Riddles in the Dark. We do have a fairly long meat and potatoes section, so we'll try to breeze through this, but we're both excited. This is going to be a really fun podcast, and then uh, we're also excited for what's to come after that. But before then, Riddles in the Dark. Uh, this is a right. part of the segment where we try to find a piece of uh, part of the book, whether that be a sentence or two of dialogue that we try to stump the other person with. We have to try to get the character, the context, and hopefully the chapter as well. So, Seth, you look like you're ready to to hit me with something here uh maybe i just literally opened my book here uh three seconds ago let's see let's see let's see um i've got one if if you want me to go i was gonna say i like i like this one actually um why don't you uh why don't you go ahead that's a nice thing about being able to edit these (laughs) yeah definitely uh this will be pretty easy like i always say but Uh uh, uh i imagine you shouldn't have any issues with this Let's start from here. I will not say farewell, my lord. I will not take your leave. For I want to see this person very much, but he is no fool. And I will not think of dying until he despairs of life. But from my word and your service, I do not wish to be released when you live. Oh, Pippin. Oh, yep. Pippin. Oh, Pippin. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea the chapter name, but he's talking to uh denethor is denethor is like get out of here i'm a psychotic individual who's gonna burn my son alive yes exactly right yeah that is the siege of gondor the siege of okay i guess that makes sense that it's right in the midst of that chapter yeah denethor is pretty much like i'm about to go burn me in faramir so go and die as you wish I love the way uh, Tolkien writes, even from the perspective of like this little hobbit in the presence mm-hmm. of these lordly men and this giant battle. And he's like, I do not wish to be parted. And like just the, the language that Tolkien mm-hmm. uses is, is beautiful. Yeah, that's I really love cool. It. Hmm. Okay, let's try this one. This might give it away, so I'll leave out one of the names. Um, <laughs> but I, I think uh, I think you like probably this use the handicap. Well, you could, that's for sure. Um, (laughs) Come, come, he said. We are all friends here, or at least we should be, for the laughter of Mordor will be our only reward if we quarrel. My errand is pressing. Mm. Come, come. That sounds like 
something Gandalf would say. <clears throat> Eventually. Do you want me to read the next sentence? You'll probably nail it on the head if, with this next <laughs> sentence. Yes. All right. Here, here's the handicap sentence for you. <laughs> Thanks. Here at least is my sword, good man Hama. Keep it well. Oh, uh, okay. Yes, that's when they're going to see Theoden in the Two Towers. Aragorn just went over this big old long spiel why he didn't want to give up Narsil, or I guess Andoril at that point. Yep. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's true. That I needed the handicap. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I was right I about it being Gandalf, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 no, yeah, you nailed that. You nailed that. And right. what chapter do you think it is? Oh, uh, um, what is the name of that chapter? Is it like just? I, said, I, I never know chapter names, so I'd be. Is it just the name. halls of Metaseld? Yeah, it's close. It's King of the Golden Hall. So oh, okay, yeah. Another way of saying what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Awesome. Well done. Well done. Very fun. Thank you to yeah. you as well. All right, so we are going to jump into the meat and potatoes. Uh, Come on. The meat and potatoes Adam, of this week's <laughs> podcast. Uh, like we were talking about last, I was going to say last week, last time we recorded a podcast, we are going over the Akalabeth, which is the downfall. Uh, this is the island of Numenor that we've spent a couple episodes talking about and the fall and what caused the fall. Uh, so diving into it, uh, it's actually pretty... Pretty interesting if you think about Numenor and the island of Numenor and the civilization of Numenor as kind of Tolkien's legend of Atlantis. There's a lot of parallels mm -hmm. between the two. Uh, Numenor is an isolated island with technology that far surpasses anything else in Middle Earth. And out of nowhere, seemingly, it just gets washed away. And with that washing away, so much of the, the um, wisdom and the knowledge just passes into the void and becomes legend and uh there are some survivors as you'll see but it's it's got a lot of parallels to atlantis so it's kind of interesting if you kind of go into this framing it in yeah. that regard that's a good parallel yeah um however we will go over the reasons why uh numenor disappeared versus i still have no idea if atlantis even existed <laughs> um anyways so to start us off, uh, the Numenorians, as we talked about before, were really beginning to question their mortality, and they began becoming very jealous of the Eldar and the Firstborn and the ability that they had to to never die, their immortality. Uh, so they started having debates amongst themselves, and I grabbed a couple little excerpts from these debates, and I, I think I'll just read it for you here because it's actually... The way it's written is very thought-provoking and very, uh, very beautiful in my mind. So mm. among the Numenorians, they were, like I said, debating and talking over their immort immortality. And, and they said, why did the Lords of the West sit there in peace unending while we must die and go not, not uh, excuse me, let me start that over. Um, why do the Lords of the West sit there in peace unending while we must die and go we not know whither? leaving our home and all that we have made. And since the Eldar die not, even those that rebelled against the lords, and since we have mastered all the seas and all the water, um, and no water is so wild that our ships cannot overcome it, why then shall we not go to Avalone and greet there our friends? Um, so they're really questioning, like, we've become so powerful 
it's unfair that we don't get to live forever. Let's let's figure out, you know, why that is. Let's go let's go meet with our friends that are over in Alvalone. Mm. Um and so it's important to remember that this at this period in time, the uh the Numenorians were still under the protection of the Valar. So primarily Ulmo, Ase, and Uinen. Um, if you remember they they kind of saw Uinen and Ase as as like they would pray to them for safe travels whenever they would go out. Um, so yes, they there's no seas that they can't handle, but they're also under that protection right now. So I think that it's a little bit of uh, false security, if, if mm, that makes yeah. sense. Uh, so this debate continues, and they ask, why should we not go to Amon and taste there, even for a day, the bliss of the powers? Have we not become mighty among the people of Arda? So again, this arrogance is starting to come up and mm-hmm. this false sense of security that like we deserve this. We should have this, even though we don't. Um, and this was very, very much discouraged by the Eldar who often visited. And the Eldar reported these conversations to Manway and the rest of the Valar. And this this was you know pretty disturbing to Manway and the Valar because they knew how Eru had created the world and it wasn't even within their power to grant immortality. Um, yeah. That was a decision made by the top dog himself and Manway and the rest of the Valar could kind of see this stuff taking seed and they knew that it wouldn't grow into anything good. And so Manway sent messengers to the, the king and whoever else would listen and they spoke about the doom and the fate of men and why you know chasing this immortality isn't good. Uh, and the debate pretty much just ends with the Valar telling the Numenorians. They said, "The love of Arda was set in your hearts by Ilovatar, and he does not plant to no purpose. Nonetheless, many ages of unborn men may pass ere that purpose is made known, and to you it will be revealed, and not to the Valar." So they're basically just saying the Valar have no idea what your purpose is after you die. Um, and Tolkien never exactly fleshes out what happens to men after they die. There's a few things that he kind of hints about, um, like it's not truly their absolute end when they die, but he never goes into detail about what their purpose is, where they'll be found, where their spirits get sent to. Um, it's very, you know, very, uh, mysterious yeah it's it's kind of left up for your own interpretation because he never fleshes it out which is i think sheds light to why they're so upset about death right because they don't know anything about it and i think that's true in our world too you see a lot of people who are really afraid of death and even if we're not trying to find immortality which i mean some people maybe are i don't know but uh just the idea that we have to leave this world in some capacity and we don't know where that goes to you know it's easier just to say oh nothing happens but we all, I think, kind of inherently know that there's something after this. And obviously as Christians, like there's a, there's a hope to that. And I think that's kind of what Tolkien wanted to flesh out too, that there, that death was a gift in, in a certain way, but still without having the faith and the belief of no, like trusting Ilavatar that he was going to take care of him in this life and the next, I can see how fear and anger and, and just, yeah, sadness would come in from, from death. Yeah, no, that's a, that's an incredibly, you know, important point. I, I think that is exactly what Tolkien was trying to flesh out in that, you know, these men, there's no certainty for them. There's certainty for the elves, but there's no certainty for the men, and they don't have faith in Elovatar to take care of them. Yeah. Um, because it is hard, you know, you if if you don't have a plan laid out in front of you, how are you supposed to trust in whatever, you know, 
the creator, you know, throws out there. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, these conversations um, and debates and everything took place during the reign of uh, Tar Simyatan, the shipbuilder, and Tar Atanamir, his son. Uh, respectively, they were the 12th and 13th rulers of Numenor. So if you remember, there are 25 total rulers of Numenor. So this is kind of right in the middle. And this is really where that transition um, begins to take place because these were the kings that began to levy tribute from the men of Middle-earth and to oppress them uh, versus, you know, helping them by sharing wisdom and things of that nature. Um, so this is really where the fracturing began to take hold. Um, and as time went on, only the faithful or the elf friends or the Elendeli, they're called many different names, um, but only they would sail north to Gilglad and render aid. And that was at like the mouth of Anduin. Um, and they created a, a port city of Hilargir. Um, if you think about Anduin the Great, like I've mentioned many, many times, get a map. It's so map, helpful yeah. when you're trying to understand Tolkien's writings. Get a map, reference it often. Um, but Anduin is that giant river that comes from uh what is it like the top of the arid mithrin the gray mountains and it flows south all the way through past lorian past mirkwood past rohan past gondor and then it dumps into the sea um in the south uh near the bay of balfalas i believe or maybe even yeah yeah right in that area so it's it's a giant giant river yeah. um and that was considered north which is interesting to me because if you look at most of tolkien's maps it's actually pretty southern on the map hmm. uh, but that's where that's where the the faithful would land and help out gilgalad whereas the kingsmen actually would sail further south into umbar and harad and that's where they established a lot of the black numenorean um ports and stuff like that uh just kind of an interesting fact uh the mouth of sauron that you meet in the return of the king that kind of argues with Gandalf and Aragorn and is quite arrogant, but nobody knows where he comes from and this and that. He's actually thought to be one of those black Numenorians. Huh. I had never put that together. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Well, then our next uh, section here, and we've talked a little bit about this the last podcast, but we're going to talk more in depth. We just kind of brushed over everything the last podcast, but I want to make sure we get a, a good understanding of Sauron and, and the and the role that he plays during this time. So from Sauron's perspective, like he hated the Numenorians, um, but he also feared them because during his wars with the elves, uh, the king at the time, the 11th ruler, Tar Minister, gave a lot of aid to Gilgalad. And so... Sauron hated the Numenorians because you know he's fighting against the elves and then obviously the aid coming from Numenor and all their amazing ships and engines like Tolkien talked about how they're very prosperous land they had a lot of great armies and weapons that I'm sure gave a lot of really good aid to Gilgalad so Sauron really didn't like the Numenorians but he didn't start pressing the coastal settlements of the Numenorians because they settled in Middle Earth if you remember from our last podcast until after the nine rings were given to the men and the Alari, which are the ring wraiths, um, they began to rain terror on the men of Middle Earth, which I'd love to hear. Maybe we'll do the podcast of this in the future, but just I'd love to hear kind of the origin stories of the of the ring wraiths and then what they do, especially while Sauron's like out doing his own thing. Like, what are what are these guys up to? What's their transformation look like? Um, but again, like I said, for another podcast, but he Sauron pushed the Numenorean settlements all the way to the coast thus claiming the title of king of men and he declared 
his purpose was to drive them into the sea and even to destroy Numenor. Because again, he hates the Numenorians. But as we've talked about, this was during the reign of the last ruler of Numenor, Ar-Pharazan, who you get a little glimpse of in the Rings of Power show. But Ar-Pharazan was also a very proud, very arrogant man. And he was angered by the idea of somebody else being the lord of men, the king of men. And so he pondered in secret and his heart was filled with the desire of unbounded power and total dominion. So then without counsel of the Valar, he just says like, this is me. I'm going to take this on myself. He claims the title of king of men and he planned to make Sauron his servant. And so he, with all his great weapons and his ships, went to contest Sauron on the coasts of Middle-earth. So he makes camp and he brings up his his command. He's probably got a crazy army. I mean, how we saw in the in the show how many people can fit in those boats, right? I mean, they just <laughs> they're like little submarines or something. <laughs> but he he gets together his entire army and I I can imagine it's just overwhelming and he he makes camp. And then this was really interesting if you read the Silmarillion. He sends out his heralds ahead to command Sauron to come before him and swear fealty to him. He doesn't just like say, hey, let the Lord of the Black Land come forth. Let justice be done upon him. He, you know, he says, <laughs> like, Sauron, get your butt over here. Like, I'm about to I'm about to bend you over and give you a spanking. <laughs> and that <laughs> that's not fake arrogance. I mean, right. you know, like a lot of people have that pretender th- thought process where it's like, oh, I just fake it till I make it type of thing. I need to put myself in those shoes and eventually things will work out. And it's like, no, Farazan is literally this arrogant. Yeah. And he had the right to be. I mean, at this time, he was the most, you know, uh, powerful ruler of men the world had ever seen. And so this is how Tolkien says it went down. This is a direct quote. And Sauron came, even from his mighty tower of Bardur, he came and made no offer of battle. For he perceived that the power and the majesty of the kings of the sea surpassed all rumor of them, so that he could trust not even the greatest of his servants to withstand them. I assume that's probably the witch king. And he yeah. saw, not in his time, yet to work his will with the Dunedain. Therefore, he humbled himself. Which is crazy. Sauron's not a very humble guy, but he humbles himself before Arpharazon, smoothed his tongue, and men wondered, for all he seemed, fair and wise. So again, we see Sauron the Deceiver. We see Sauron, uh, bringer of gifts, this charming guy that's like, okay, uh, let's, let's be cool, guys. Uh, let's talk about this for a second. But Farazan, at least for now, was not deceived by Sauron. And he thought if Sauron was going to truly serve him, that he needed to go back to Numenor as his hostage. But, you know, as happy as Farazan was like, oh, look at me, I just captured Sauron, the great bad guy. Sauron was kind of okay with this. He was happy with the idea of going back to Numenor because he knew what that opportunity meant. And so while he was sailing towards the island, after he had gotten on the boat and left with Farazan, He looked on the city of Armenelos and was astounded. And yet his heart was filled with even more envy and hate. Because again, he hates the Numenorians, but he sees an opportunity here of what he can use and what he can just poison this land with. And it only took three years for Sauron to become the closest counselor to the king. So even though he came to be his servant, he's now his counselor. And he began to poison the mind and give him dark thoughts. And then he started saying, hey, there's this guy, the Dark Lord. You should worship him. Farazan's like, who's the Dark Lord? He goes, well, that's, that's Melkor, Morgoth. And at first, Farazan started worshiping him in secret, but then in openly in front of all his people. And, and a lot of them followed for the most part, which is the sad thing. You know, you see a king, you see a politician, a ruler, 
he claims, hey, this is right and true. This is what we're going to follow after. And a lot of people just blindly follow, not really understanding where they're going. And because of Sauron's influence, the Elendili, or the elf friends, were in a lot of danger. And so they were often rounded up and used as sacrifices to Morgoth on uh, Sauron's behalf. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember, I don't think Sauron's schemes would have necessarily played out that well if he didn't come when he did. If he came sooner before this fracturing had already started, he may not have gotten very far. Mm -hmm. Um, But at this point in time, they've already got, you know, the faithful and the kingsmen, and this is far as on the most arrogant, the most um, self-absorbed king yet that is really, really seeking for an answer to his, his mortality. And I think it was just like a perfect storm of this is the perfect king at the perfect point in time. And Sauron is the perfect deceiver uh, to let these plans take hold. Yeah, absolutely. So it's important to understand if you want to kind of get in the political mindset of everything that's going on. It's under it's important to understand who the lords of Andunier were. Uh, so we talked about them briefly. They're actually of the the uh, line of Elros Tarminiatur. However, they are not of the ruling line. I forget exactly what it was. We talked about it on the last podcast, but it was, I believe, a sister uh, that gave birth. And this is the line of the Lords of Andunia versus the son who took the throne. Yep. So they basically are royalty and they mirror the ruling line. They just don't get to rule. Um, so these, because of this, the, the lords were often high counselors to the kings and they remained very loyal to the kings, but in secret, they also remained very loyal to the elves. Uh, and they didn't, they didn't admit that openly. They kept it near and dear to their hearts. Um, and thus it happened to Amandil, who was the Lord of Andunia at the time of Farazan. It just so happened that he was the close counselor to Arfarazan, and so he had a firsthand experience, and you know he was there to watch everything go down. Um, Tolkien actually says that in their youth, Amandil was dear to Farazan, and thus he remained in the king's council. So I don't know what that means necessarily. Why were why was he dear to him as a kid? Because it seems like Farazan from the beginning was pretty crappy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. I wonder, I wonder what Amandil did to gain his, his friendship to, to that level. But I don't know. Mm, that's um, interesting. Yeah. So Amandil was able to see how the rest of the king's counselors were fawning over Sauron's words. And remember, Sauron is the deceiver at this point in time. He's got a smooth tongue that can win anybody over. And so he's watching the rest of the counselors buy into Sauron's uh, hate and and plans, but he wasn't he wasn't deceived by it. Um, and so it was around this time that he kind of started to have a change in heart and started wondering what was going on. We probably need to make some plans because this is going down a path we don't want to we don't want to see. Um, so he was actually dismissed right around the same time by the king because. Tolkien says, and I quote, Sauron hated him above all others in Numenor, which mm-hmm. is a pretty, you know, pretty good uh, <laughs> target to have on your back. Yeah, um, that's that's pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, but he still held the heart and the honor of many people in Numenor. And so Sauron and Farazan refused to lay hands on him because he was still the Lord of Andunye of the, you know, line of Elros, even though he wasn't of the ruling line. But it was at this time that Amandil decided 
to move everybody from from his house and his friends and the faithful from uh, and it, this is where again having a map is important but they moved him from Andunye which is on kind of the northwest coast which if you remember the ban of the Valar they can't sail past um, the site of Numenor on the west however he moved everybody to Romena which is a port city on the east coast. So on the opposite side of the Valar, which there mm-hmm. he is of the faithful, he's the friend of the elves, like he should be on that west coast, but he's sensing something going down that he doesn't want to be a part of. And so he actually goes, it's like going from, you know, the east coast to the west coast in America, or I guess the opposite, going from the west coast to the east yeah. coast, um, like LA to New York, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so he transfers everybody over there. And he summoned the rest of the faithful from anywhere in Numenor. If they were the faithful, he said, hey, let's get together out in Romena. Um, yeah. And during this time, Sauron counseled the king that he should actually cut down the white tree, Nimloth the Fair, which was a memorial to the Eldar and the light of Valinor. This was the same tree that you see in the Rings of Power. This is the same tree or a seedling of this tree that you mm-hmm. see in the Lord of the Rings Return of the King. Uh, It's a very, very important tree, and this is where that tree spurned from. And so it's a very special tree that that Sauron is like, hey, let's get rid of this. Let's cut it down. And at first, uh, Farazhan refused to do this because he was scared of the words of Tar Palantir, who was the father of Muriel, who he married and usurped her throne, who basically said, when the tree falls, so will Numenor. Um, So Farazhan still was a little wary to cut it down. Yeah, but when Amandil heard this, he was he was grieved, and he spoke to his uh, his son Elendil and to his son, so his grandsons, about the trees. He kind of told them the backstory that you know these are the trees of the Valinor, <clears throat> and at this Isildur, uh, the grandson of Amandil at this time, the son of Elendil, as we know, uh, he said no word as he's hearing all this coming from his grandpa, telling him about the story of the tree of Valinor. But he went out by night and did a deed, which is afterwards renowned, which is what Tolkien says. There's a lot of deeds which are are uh, afterwards renowned, <laughs> as yeah. he always says. But uh, Isildur uh, was one of the faithful of the elf friends. He took it upon himself to save the tree. So he got disguised. I don't know what he put on, but he disguised himself and he snuck out and he cut a piece of fruit off the tree because the tree wasn't blooming at this time, but he was able to pull a piece of fruit off. But Tolkien also said that the tree was guarded day and night because of Sauron and uh, what he wanted to do to this tree. So he, he grabs a piece of fruit, but then on his way out, out, he wakes the guards so i don't know how he got in quietly but on his way out he wakes the guards and he has to fight his way out and it's pretty intense like he we don't really get to see what happens in the fight all that tolkien says is he comes out he comes away extremely wounded close to death but he brings the the fruit and he gives it to his grandfather amandil and amandil plants uh, a seedling and a shoot from that opens up and this is something i like when i read this i was like i don't understand this at all like there's just some magic in tolkien's world that doesn't make sense to me because we don't have any context to it. But pretty much what, what happens is when Amandil planted the fruit and a seedling shot up, a shoot shot up from the tree and it and it blossomed, the sealer was fine. He like woke up from all his wounds. He was like almost about to die. He woke up from all his wounds and Tolkien says that his wounds didn't trouble him any longer. How? I have no idea. <laughs> is yeah, that like I, a I have no idea on that note. I mean it it happens every now and then in Tolkien's writings where 
especially as we'll see in Children of Hurin. Um, like there's just little things where somebody goes into a stupor of some kind and they won't come out until something happens and then all of a sudden they're fine again. And it's yeah. it's almost like it's such an emotional like, yeah, he was almost dead from the wounds, but it's almost more emotional as if like Isildur was so tied to this tree because he saw that as their future that when the, you know, the tree was dying and all that was left was the fruit, he was dying. But then, mm. you know, once the, the shoot shot up, all of a sudden he has hope again and is revived. I don't know. Um, I will say I do love the way Tolkien writes about Isildur doing this, where he's like, Isildur said no word, but then got up and walked out, basically. Like, he didn't <laughs> tell his father what he was doing. He didn't tell his grandfather what he was doing. He just, he heard this and he was so impassioned by it that he just got up and left. And yeah. could you imagine being his dad? Like, oh, where, where did Isildur go? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> and then he shows up almost dead with, with the fruit of this tree. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty heroic, to say the least. Um, but after hearing the assault on the tree, Farzan yielded to Sauron's wishes, and he's like, all right, let's go ahead and cut this tree down. So he cuts down the white tree of Nimloth. And this obviously, again, foreshadows the fall of Numenor. But once this happens, Sauron kind of, his control is all but there. I mean, Farazan's still the top dog, but Sauron can pretty much do whatever he wants at this point. So he constructs a huge temple built in the size of a circle that had a huge dome. It was a silvered top dome. And inside of it, he put an altar that he would burn things to. And Tolkien says that because of all the smoke, the silver, that the, the dome's ceiling that was made of silver completely blackened because of all the smoke and all the altars and stuff that he uh, sacrificed there. But the first thing he burned on this altar was the white tree of Nimloth. And <clears throat> something else that Tolkien mentions, too, is that the the smell of the tree kind of affected everyone in Numenor. They're all trying to figure out what's going on because this tree had a specific smell to it. And again, if it's from Valinor, it makes sense that they wouldn't really be able to... It wouldn't smell like normal burnt wood. It would smell something different, I suppose. Yeah, that's, um, that's interesting. That's just another... You know, another thing that Tolkien does that adds depth and layers to it. I I actually missed that part, but thanks for sharing that. That's awesome. Yeah, I think Tolkien said it took like seven days for the smoke to clear from the tree and for people to go back to normal. Like they were really wow. confused by it, um, really like troubled by the smell of the tree. Hmm. But from then on, Sauron's influence in Numenor was literally unmatched. And so the people of Armenelos, the city, would bring to the temple sacrifices to Melkor, asking for freedom from death. So again, we see this tension between not wanting to die. And so they're offering, they're thinking, well, maybe the Lord of Darkness can free me from my inevitable death. And so they bring sacrifices. And most of that was actually people, like living people. And a lot of those were faithful among the faithful that they had taken, victims that they had taken. And Sar uh, Tolkien actually says that it wasn't because they didn't, the faithful didn't believe in Melkor. It was actually because of all the differences that they had. And so one of the really cool quotes that I took from this was, Tolkien writes this, Yet those were bitter days, and hate brings forth hate. Which, I mean, that, I don't have to explain that we see this on a daily basis with the world, with what's going on around us, especially like 2020, just seeing everyone had to pick a side, everyone had to hate the other person, because it was bitter days, you know, it just hate yeah. brings forth hate, and nobody was willing to yield from hate, so yeah, I thought that was a pretty I good like quote. That. That's a great quote. But from then on, even though the Numenorians were prospering, like they were uh, growing in, in power, and they were growing in wealth, they were even more scared of death, 
and they were quick to anger with one another and they often slew each other for little cause tolkien says so they were just you know maybe a bar fight goes into like an all-time massacre you know people are just drawing swords on one another but again they increased in everything in every way except for their happiness which is a good lesson there yeah yeah think about this as well when we talked about numenor when we were going over this just dawned on me remember when we were talking about the the island of numenor itself how nobody wore a sword in numenor except the Mm. king and only on special occasions did he wear a sword and now to think that that's where they all started and now like sam mentioned you're you're being slew slew slewn slaughtered (laughs) you're being slaughtered for little cause so that there implies that people are now walking around armed and looking to fight one another as opposed to this peaceful place where nobody even had a sword yeah it's a complete 180 from from what is gone and again it it comes down to just the fear of death and not having the faith that Ariel Avatar wants wants good for them and so yeah they they find a little joy a little happiness even though in every other way they're prospering but the the thing that really got me and made me sad was they didn't just keep their anger and their grief and their you know frustrations to the island of Numenor they decided to sail to Middle Earth and rather than being the gift givers of you know men of prosperity they came and they just really hunted down the 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 men of Middle Earth and they slew them cruelly and they they made sacrifices on the altars that they made there and the memory of the kind kings of ancient completely faded away so now all people of new like all people of middle earth thought of the numenorians were just horrible guys you know just people would come in take whatever they wanted kill whoever they wanted and leave so as time went on our on he is growing weary because he's getting older and he knows death is coming quickly and so again he's he's filled with fear and wrath is what Tolkien says at this oncoming departure. And this is the time that Sauron had long waited for. This is, was kind of his culmination. He had long prepared for this moment when, when Farazan would be at his most vulnerable and his most weak because he's about to die. And so he mentions to Farazan that he is worthy of undying life. And that he even compared him to the likes of Manwe. So Sauron's like, Hey, you, you're worthy of, immortality of undying life i mean nobody's stronger than you you're you're probably even just as strong as manway which was a crazy statement to say so <laughs> yeah. farzan started plotting how he would make war upon the valor and seek the undying lands i mean if you think about that statement so you have men and elves mm-hmm. right firstborn secondborn okay then you have like the astari and you know like gandalf and the balrogs yeah meyer right and sauron or saruman and Sauron. And yep. then above that, you have the Valar. And then at the top of the Valar, you have Manway. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, it it's just a big, shows you. There's a big org chart in between the two. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, <laughs> it just goes to show how effective little lies whispered in someone's ear over a great period of time and lies that are deceptively created to serve a purpose, how, how strong those lies can be. Because there's no way that Farazan should hear that in any way, shape, or form and go, yeah, I think he's right. The only way that works is if there have been years of grooming and whispers being put into his ear. And hey, this this may sound crazy, but I think you're as powerful as Manway. Like that it shouldn't it shouldn't work, but it does. Um absolutely. So kind of going back to the Lords of Andunye uh line here. 
Amandil knew the peril that Numenor was in, and that they would be destroyed if they sought war against the Valar like like Farazhan was contemplating. Uh, so he decided to take matters into his own hand for at least the faithful and those that followed him. Mm -hmm. uh, and he called his son Elendil, and he said to him, These days are dark, and there is no hope for men, for the faithful are few. Therefore, I am minded to try that counsel which our forefather Arendil took of old, to sail into the west, be there ban or no, and speak to the Valar, even to Manway himself, if maybe, and beseech his aid ere all is lost. So think about the difference there between Farazan and Amandil. Farazan's like, wait a minute, yeah, I think I am on a level playing field with Manway. And Amandil is over here going, man, if I can just talk to the Valar, and maybe if I'm lucky, Manway, and then I can beg them for help. And it's like... Yeah. Just think about the difference between those two mindsets. Um, and these are yeah, two the humility, people for sure. Exactly. They're two people that grew up together that knew each other very well, that were very similar in stature and power of mind and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and he went on to tell to tell Elendil, he said, as for the ban, I will suffer that penalty upon myself, lest all the people should be lest all my people should become guilty, which that is the great signal of a true leader somebody that's willing to take you know take the penalties upon themselves at be the behest of the people that are following him he's basically saying it may not work out for me the way it did for for arendelle but i'm willing to risk that because i care about everybody else yeah um and it was at this point that he told Elendil to prepare ships for himself and for his kinsfolk and to put aboard the ships all the things that they dare not lose and in time to follow him into the east. Uh, this is because Amandil basically said, again, if you're looking at a map or thinking about the geography of Numenor, he said, I'm going to sail east as to not you know, trigger any alarms. I'm doing this in secret. If, I, if they knew I was sailing west, they'd chase me down. They'd, you know... They wouldn't let it happen. So he basically is feigning that he's going to travel east to Middle-earth and just leave Numenor. Mm -hmm. um, but his plan all along is to double back and sail west. And so he basically is telling Elendil, like, get everything ready and act like you're going to follow me to the east. Um, and Elendil did, just as Amandil mentioned, and he didn't meddle in the war, uh, but he decided to just wait and watch. Um, and Amandil said to Elendil, he said, it is most like that you shall fly from the land of the star with no star to guide you, for that land is defiled. Then you shall lose all that you have loved, foretasting death in life, seeking land of exile elsewhere, but east or west only the Valar can say. Which, if you think about, it's like, all right, bye, Dad. <laughs> Thanks for those encouraging <laughs> words. Yeah. Um, so Amandil on his ship took three of his closest friends and went upon this mission to never be heard from again. Uh, so clearly it was not meant to be for Amandil to follow in, in his uh, ancestor Arendil's footsteps. But Elendil, like I mentioned, he did what his father requested. Elendil uh, gathered ships together and on these ships they put their, you know, their wives, their children, all their really precious heirlooms. They put scrolls of lore and wisdom um, that Tolkien actually says written in scarlet and black, which I don't know why he included that, but it adds flavor to, you know, <laughs> like importance, I guess. Um, yeah. Another interesting that thing that they brought on the ships were seven stones that were the gift of the Eldar, which hmm. I wonder what those could be. Yeah. 
And on Isildur's ship, he actually took um, a scion, which I should have Googled. I'm not entirely sure what that is. I assume it's like a seed or a shoot of this tree of Nimloth. Yeah. Do you know what a scion is? <laughs> I, I imagine it's a, it's a seed. Uh, what yeah. is a scion? <laughs> Time out. Let's see. <laughs> all, all that comes up is a car. Oh, a young shoot or twig of a plant, especially one oh, cut you. for grafting or rooting. Oh, interesting. See? And then you have the, the cars, the Scion cars <laughs> right after that. I don't think I'd want to buy a Scion car after reading the definition. No, probably not. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, Isildur actually took uh, the Scion of the of Nimloth the Fair and guarded it himself on his own ship. So Isildur is really taking this to heart and basically yeah. like, this is my thing to keep track of. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the way he's portrayed in... Uh, in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, he kind of has to be portrayed that way for it to be yeah. cinematic. But there's a lot of, I think Isildur is pretty misunderstood and he's kind of villainized in, a, in ways that he shouldn't be. Sure. I agree. Uh, he's definitely not the wayward problem child of Rings of Power either, but he's, no. yeah, I agree. He's, he's done a lot of really cool things, but unfortunately for Peter Jackson to explain what happens to him, he just kind of has to say, yeah, the dude, just took the ring himself and yeah, didn't want to, didn't want to destroy it. Which if you kind of dig into the writings and stuff, I'm pretty sure in one of Tolkien's letters, he actually explains that nobody of their free will could destroy the ring. Nobody. Yeah. So when Isildur said like, I can't destroy it and walked away, he was doing what everybody else did. If you remember at the end of the return of the King, Frodo does the exact same thing. Exactly. And the yep. ring is only destroyed because Gollum bites the ring and slips into the fire and it's an accident. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I think Isildur is kind of an underrated character that gets demonized. Yeah, I agree. Um, so yeah, after, after loading all these ships up and kind of just sitting and waiting, they're just off the coast. I mean, they're not, it, they're ready to go at a moment's notice, but they're not, you know, sailing away yet. Um, so basically Elendil and his sons just sat there waiting for word to come, uh, from his father that never did, but they did refuse the summons of Farazan. Uh, for this war that he is about to wage. Yeah, and this is when stuff really starts ramping up. Uh, we talked about this in our Eagles podcast, uh, but this was the time where a great cloud would come in the evening shaped as though it were thought to be an eagle. And it would loom up and it would blot out the sunset and uttermost night would fall upon Numenor. So again, you, you think of a great cloud that would come up even before the sun sets. And then once the cloud is gone, it's just darkness. Like you don't even get to see the sunset at all. But some of the eagles were born uh, lightning beneath their wings and thunder echoed and men often cried in fear. Behold, the eagles of the Lord of the West. But the king spoke as far as on they strike first. The next blow shall be ours. So again, that's saying like we're about to go to battle. We're going to we're going to get them back. But as the lightning increases, Tolkien says that it slew men on the hills and in the fields and in the streets of the city and with a fiery bolt smote the dome of the temple and shore it asunder and it was wreathed in flame. But the temple itself was unshaken. And here we go. Sauron stood there upon the pinnacle and defied the lightning and was unharmed. And in that hour, men called him a god and did all that he would do. So again, he's standing up there. He's defying, knowing that, of course, the Valar are sending these these lightning bolts and stuff. He's he's just like, yeah, come at me. I'm I can't be touched by this. I'm not going to get hurt by this. And everyone's looking around, like seeing people get struck by lightning and die and Sauron just standing above and, and they're like, Oh my gosh, this is, 
this is the God we must worship. And so they start worshiping and doing whatever he wants to do. But uh, yeah, Farzan, it, I was going to say it really, it really kind of nails in that Farzan is doing the right thing, right? So if yeah. this lightning is striking people and killing them, and then you see Sauron defying it, just standing up there like, no, I, I have this power. And then he's telling Farzan, hey, you can go do this. It's like, okay, there's, there's credence to what he's saying. There's, you know, he's powerful enough to defy this lightning and be unharmed. And so we should definitely go with what he's recommending. Yeah, absolutely. And at this point, Farzan, he's hardened his heart completely and he went aboard his mighty ship, which is called Alcarandas, which is the castle of the sea, which Seth and I both just thought that's an awesome name for a ship, the castle of the sea. And he raised his standard in that hour. The trumpets of Numenor outrang the thunder. So you think about it, like the loudest thunder of a, a storm you've ever been in. It's it's just shakes your house or your car or wherever you are when this thunder happens. So they're they're like, nope, we're going to fight back. And Tolkien often does this. Like, I love trumpets in his works because they're always foreshadowing a battle. Like there's always trumpets mm-hmm. happening in pretty much any conflict you see throughout the Lord of the Rings or anything else like that. So the Numenorians are blasting their trumpets and they outrang the thunder. <clears throat> As the Numenorian fleet approached the island of Erisea, Farazan's heart wavered. When he looked down, he saw Tanaquetil mountain shining, whiter than snow, colder than death, silent, immutable, terrible as the shadow of the light of Ilavatar. So his heart wavered. He's like, oh my gosh, that look at this thing. But pride was now his master, which I love again how Tolkien says it. Pride was now his master. If you've ever let pride seep in and you've ever gotten to that point where you think, yeah, this is probably not a good idea, but I can do this. <laughs> I've done that snowboarding and I've hurt myself many times. It's like, oh my gosh, that's a big cliff. I shouldn't, eh, I'll be fine. <laughs> yep. But pride was now his master, and he came ashore, claiming the land as if, as his own, if none would do battle for it. So he's he goes up there, he's like, all right, this place is now mine, because you guys are obviously not here. I guess nobody's home. I will take this land to be mine. Yeah, and I love how Tolkien talks about um, talks about the metal, or Tanaquetil, and just the mountain, and he describes it, and it's just the view of the mountain. Like, Farazan doesn't see an army, he doesn't see the Valar. He doesn't see any. All he sees is a giant mountain, and he's so blown away by it that he's like, oh, maybe this wasn't such a great idea. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's I don't know, it's a very clever way of of writing that, I think. Absolutely. Um, so it was at this point where Manway called upon Ilovatar. Uh, he called upon Ilovatar, and he the rest of the Valar laid down government of, of Arda. So if you remember way back, early, early on, um, these Valar came down to Arda and their whole purpose was to govern it as they saw fit to change things here, change things there. It was, they, they were up with the Ilovatar and these were a select few that decided to come down. And so at this point in time, they gave all that up and said, Ilovatar, this is on you. This is beyond us. What do you want to do? It's up to you. Um, and Ilovatar actually changed the fashion of the world, and a great chasm opened in the sea between Numenor and the Deathless Lands, and the world was shaken. Uh, so, basically, he's breaking the world. He's changing the entire shape of the world. This is this is when uh, Middle Earth or Arda goes from being flat to now being uh, rounded or circular, kind of like our Earth, our yeah. Earth. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
And Tolkien says that all of the fleets of the Numenorians were drowned into the abyss and swallowed up forever. However, Farazan and those who had set foot on the land were buried under falling hills, and it is said that they lie imprisoned in the caves of the Forgotten until the last battle in the Day of Doom. So I have no idea what any of that means, the caves of the Forgotten. Obviously, somebody remembers it if it was written. Um, And the last battle in the Day of Doom, like when is that? That obviously wasn't anything we saw in Lord of the Rings, right? I mean, when is this last battle in the Day of Doom? There, Tolkien does hint at that um, at that battle. I have I, I'd have to refresh upon it, but apparently, because um, right now Melkor or Morgoth is out in the void, and apparently yeah. he comes back, and Uncalagon comes back, and uh, Uncalagon the Black, I believe, the giant yeah, dragon, dragon, and supposedly Turin is supposed to fly on. Vingilot, I think, and kill Melkor at the end. I don't, I don't remember exactly. <laughs> there is, I mean, there is writings about it, but it's pretty wow. cool. But like, just going off of this until the battle in the Day of Doom, whose side is Farazan going to fight on if he's resurrected mm. for this or if he's set free for this? Like those Numenorians, are they going to repent yeah. and, and fight on the side of the Valar and fight against Morgoth? But they've been worshiping him. They think sure. that he's, you know the the god that's going to rescue them from from their mortal lives so if they were resurrected are they going to fight on his side and if so that's a powerful force to have to deal with yeah absolutely uh so it's just something kind of interesting to think about Mm -hmm. um and then back in numenor the mental tarma which is interesting to me um how tolkien talks about tanaquitil uh being oh you good Oh, sorry. Um, I thought you said something. Mm -hmm. Um, It's interesting to me how Tolkien talks about Tanaquitil, the mountain in Valinor, that's just this massive, beautiful mountain. And then he juxtaposes that with the beautiful mountain in Numenor. Um, But he talks about the mental Tarma in Numenor and he says it burst forth into flame. And last of all, a mounting wave climbed up and took Tarmuriel, the queen, fairer than silver or ivory pearls. And her cry was lost in the roaring of the wind. You bet she couldn't see it coming. (laughs) (laughs) But um, Uh, because she's supposed to be blind, apparently. (laughs) Yeah, she was probably just like, "Oh, what's that smell? What do I hear?" (laughs) Oh gosh, gosh. yeah. Sorry. I I hope they make her like have a miraculous recovery. Like, oh, she was only temporarily blind. Yeah. Well, but no, because if she's not blind, then Farazan can't can't usurp her throne because she's too powerful that's true mary even though she has less than a paragraph in tolkien's writings (laughs) yeah uh anyways um so as the mountain is on fire and the waves are coming up to just destroy numenor sauron himself was actually fear full of fear and wrath um of towards the Valar because he was like, holy crap, I did not expect it to be this bad. I thought he was just going to kill off all of them and I'd kind of rule over Numenor. He did not expect Eru to get involved and change the entire shape of the world. Um, and so as he was sitting there, um, he kind of started laughing to himself. He's like, wait a minute, a world without the Edine or the, the houses of men that defied him, that fought with the elves against Morgoth. He's like, a world without them, I think I can conquer because the elves are a lot weaker now. And so he starts like just laughing to himself and being like, yeah, I got this. And as he's doing that, 
his seat and the temple fell into the abyss. However, he is not of mortal flesh, and so he couldn't be killed by um, by the upturning of Numenor. But he was robbed of the ability to take fair shape ever again. So Sauron the Deceiver, um, Sauron the Giver of Gifts, you know, all these things he can't do anymore because that was stripped with him, stripped from him with this giant wave, which I don't know how that works, but it does. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like a black shadow, he was taken by the wind and flung back to Mordor, where he again took up his one ring and uh, started ruling in the Baradur again. Um, and the island of Numenor had its foundations overturned and it fell into darkness and the shape of the world was changed to a circle, like I mentioned before. All shall fade. All <laughs> shall fade. <laughs> I, I'm just I thinking think of so. them. Yeah. I'm just thinking of all the the uh memes I see about like Lord of the Rings fans and it's tomatoes, nah. <laughs> and then it's potatoes, <laughs> thumbs up type of thing, you know, because that song that you just sang, the tomatoes yeah. are just blowing all over Denethor's face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so with this, you might be wondering, well, what happened to the faithful? What happened to Elendil and his sons Isildur and Anarion and the rest of them? Like what happened to them? Well, as you remember, they're just hanging on the coast. They're still in their ships. They're ready to go at a moment's notice. But when this happens, um, they actually had nine ships. They had four for Elendil, three for Isildur, and two for Anarion. And with this giant wave and wind and everything, the same wind that pushed um, Sauron back to back to Mordor, Mordor. yep, um, the same wind and wave pushed all of uh, these ships, these nine ships of the faithful towards Middle-earth. And in Middle-earth, the Elendil and his sons uh, founded kingdoms that were just but an echo of the previous glory of, of Numenor, but they built great works and continued the long war against Sauron. Um, so this is, you know, this is Arnor and Gondor, and they actually built the, the Tower of Orthanc, uh, kind of over by Rohan and they built the the Argonoth and the and the River Anduin with the you know the Amon Sul and all these amazing places that you see in Lord of the Rings. That was the doing of of Elendil and his and his lineage. Yeah. Um so to end this off, I thought it would be really cool. I'll actually have Sam Sam read this off. Uh, but these are the words that Elendil <laughs> spoke <laughs> upon setting foot in Middle Earth as it's said in Quenya. As it's said in Quenya. Okay, nice. <clears throat> Et- <clears throat> I didn't tell Sam I was going to tell have him read it. <laughs> et hielo, endorne et tulien, sonome maruvan ar hildanyar ten ambar meta. Wow, that was actually much better. Oh, not bad, huh? not bad. <laughs> and in translation, that means, out of the great sea to Middle Earth, I am come. In this place, I will abide, and my heirs unto the ending of the world. So these mm-hmm. are actually uh, the same words that Aragorn says when he's crowned king of Gondor and Arnor in the Return of the King. And I think it's a really cool tribute that Peter Jackson put in the movies, where when Aragorn is singing um, during his coronation, he's actually singing the words that were spoken by his his forefather, uh, oh, yeah. Elendil, as he set foot on Middle-earth. 
had I known that before, I would have probably been able to pronounce it a little better because I have that, you know, memorized a little better. But do you? Eterno Natulian Something like that. I don't know. That was actually that was <laughs> that was very good. I like it. Well Thank done. You. That's yeah, that's the, a that's a song I listen everything. to a lot when I'm working or like going to sleep or something. I just I like that song. <laughs> isn't it isn't it cool that I mean Peter Jackson definitely changed a lot of things and some, in my opinion, not for the better. But yeah. little things like that, you know, where he turns it into a song and has Aragorn sing it, and it's not it, nobody knows what he's singing. Yeah. Unless you know kind of the backstory and everything going into it. But it's like that shows the level and care and just the depth of knowledge that Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh and Philippa Boy is it Boyens? Boyens, yeah. Boyens, yeah, that all of them had and just their love of Tolkien's of Tolkien's works, which you juxtapose that with the rings it's, of power, and it's like, yeah. oh boy. Yeah. No, I I think that's awesome. Like I said, I didn't even didn't even make that connection, but after you said that, I was like, oh yeah, like these are the words that I've been hearing that he's been yeah. saying. And, and that's really cool. Uh, I will abide my heirs unto the ending of the world. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty neat. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, this was an awesome podcast. Uh, let's, before we jump into Gondor calls for aid, let's explain what our future is for the podcast. Cause we've got a pretty exciting next uh, few, I don't know how long it'll take, but next, it'll take a while. It'll take journey. A while. Next journey, right? There we go. We know where our feet are being swept off to. So, Seth, why don't you just kind of outline? Because this is this is your favorite, right? This is your favorite story um, that Tolkien has. So, tell us what we're doing. Yeah. So, uh, we each wait. You found your copy, right? We're good. Yeah. 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 I got it. I got <laughs> okay, it. Good, yeah. good. 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 <laughs> um, you thought for a while you didn't have it. So, yeah, um, we're going to jump into the Children of Hurin, which is a first age story about uh, Hurin and his children, obviously. Oh, wow. Uh, as they live a very, very sad life that is full of, um, full of just peril and adventure. And it's just, it's tragically beautiful is the best mm -hmm. way I can say it. Um, we're planning to read, we'll probably do a podcast every other week and do two chapters per podcast. So instead of, you know, you guys listening to this podcast after the fact and just kind of getting some knowledge out of it based on our own research, we're trying to make this one a little bit more of like a read along. So yeah. Sam and I will read these chapters on our own, take some notes on our own, and then we'll kind of discuss a rough outline of of how the the book flows. Um, but we'll also just point out everything that we think is, you know, really fun and interesting um, and kind of tell the story as as we revisit it. So, like I said, this is probably my favorite uh, story in all of Tolkien's works. It's just it's it's beautiful. It really is. Yeah. And if you're somebody who's like, man, I've been really wanting to try to get into some of Tolkien's first age stuff, but it's just kind of daunting. I start reading it, but I don't understand things like this is the perfect time to jump into it. And Seth and I don't want to do this in isolation. We want to invite you to do it with us and send us questions or send us your what stood out to you, because we're going to be kind of given highlights of each chapter with our podcast and what stood out to us. But obviously, as you're reading too, something else will probably stand out to you that we didn't even catch. And if you shoot that into our, our 
email box or you can message Seth and I on, on social media or whatever that is. And we'll, we'll probably mention it on the podcast too. Cause we want, we, re- we really do want this to be something that we get to do together and that we hear your thoughts and kind of make it more of a community based thing rather than us just talking at you guys all the time. Yeah, for sure. I, I don't know. Maybe we should make a Facebook page or something. Um, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, definitely get involved with this because like Sam mentioned, I know Tolkien's works can be pretty daunting, especially with this first and second age stuff that, you know, is a little less fleshed out. But Children of Hurin is there's a little snippet of it in the Silmarillion, but the actual book that Christopher Tolkien edited is is very in depth and it's a perfect story. And honestly, if I know uh, the unexpected podcast or up talking Tolkien, they keep saying like, man, why did Rings of Power just make this into a show? Yeah, um, yeah. I think it would have been a much better idea than what they did because there's actual dialogue. There's great storytelling. It's it's a fantastic story that I'm I'm really looking forward to sharing with people. And I hope that, you know, some people jump on board and read along with us. Yeah, I completely agree. hundred percent. So without further ado, Gondor calls for aid. So we're breaking down the halls of Metaseld and we shout Gondor. Gondor calls for aid. Will you Rohan answer? If you enjoy the podcast, please light a beacon by sharing it with fellow friends and fans. But also don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Also, like I said, go ahead and reach out to us at our email, weckpodcast at gmail.com, sharing your token story, your thoughts on roots of power, or even your insights on children of Burn as we jump into that. So next, hopefully two weeks, two weeks time, if all goes right, we will have uh, our podcast out on the first two chapters of Children of Hurricane. So hopefully you read those in advance. But until then, we bid you a very fond farewell.